The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 832 for Monday, September 7th, 2020. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. The show where we take your tips, your questions, your cool stuff found, we mash them all together, and we mix them together, we slice them, we dice them. It's, it's like kind of like a cooking show, except with tech tips. I'm not sure how the two relate, but you are. That's why you're watching. Uh, or, or listening. Mostly you're listening. Some of you are watching. It's all happening. It's all fine. Uh, the goal is that each of us leaves here after having learned at least five new things each and every week. Sponsors for this episode include linode.com slash mgg, expressvpn.com slash mgg, and PDF pen from smilesoftware.com slash podcast. We'll talk more about each of those URLs and what you'll find when you go there, what you'll hopefully find when you go there in a minute. For now, back here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Indeed. What do you mean back? Well, did you go somewhere? Yeah, I had to go a couple of towns south of me for some uh, emergency surgery the other day. Yeah, my uh, oh my. my gallbladder was was had informed me, was attempting to inform me, and then finally successfully informed me that it was time to go. Uh, so they they took care of that the other night for me, which is good. Uh, end of life. It had, yeah, it had reached its end. Quite frankly, what we did was we made my body run more efficiently because we took a part out and it, you know, it still runs the same. So there nice. you go. I, I, right. it's like, that's how we do it. That's right. Uh, we'll t- I have a, a, a little segment about that, not about the medical part, but about the, the geeky part of that that might help you all because my hospital staff was actually very impressed with one thing that I did. So we will. We will, and they said every patient should do this. Like, well, I will tell as many of them as I can. But for now, John. Oh, one weird, one weird trick. One weird tell trick. One weird trick. That's right. Oh, I should do an ad. Oh man. Uh, you want to take us to some quick tips, man, or are we still going to pull on yes. this thread? Okay. Quickly, quickly. Yeah, cut the thread. All right. Um, Jeffrey got a good one here. And which I, I actually really like. Quick tip. Want to fix an iOS messages badge showing an unread message when you can't find an unread message? In messages, click the three dots in the circle at the top right, then click on select messages. And at the bottom left, click read all. Problem solved. Huh. And I like that because, man, I hate it when there's a indicator on a badge and, like, you can't get rid of it because you can't find the the content that it's telling you about. So I, I, I like his solution. I mean, his solution is is sort of declaring bankruptcy on any messages that you have not read, right? Because you're just marking them as read, and yeah. that's that. Um, I used to do this until I got a car with CarPlay, because mm-hmm. when I would get in my car, or when I get in my car to go somewhere, and if I'm you know in the car and I get a message. It will offer to read me because it's all done with with, you know, Siri and voice. It'll offer to read me all my unread messages. And it was like, yeah, that's what I want. So I would get in the car and find out about a message from three days ago that I just missed because it was, you know, 
in the flow of the stream. And so, uh, and there's no way to tell messages only show me unread. Like you can't filter or sort or anything like that. It's a, it's, it, it, no pun intended. It's a mess of mm -hmm. messages. Uh, but you can also do that without a car. You can just say, Hey, S lady, read me my unread messages. And then you can actually hear the ones that are, that are unread. You can't see them. Of course, maybe it would show them to you. I don't know, but you can definitely do it with the S lady. So that's another way. So there you go. You got another quick tip for us, John? Sure. Um, Dennis writes, here is something that I recently found. Not sure if it's something that is widely known or not, but when you have system preferences open and have a hard time finding what you are looking for, click view in the menu bar and there will be an alphabetized list of preferences to select from. Yeah. And that's a good one because as far as I can tell, Dave, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason as to how things are laid out in system preferences other than ones that aren't from Apple are on the bottom. Uh, that's the only pattern that I see. Right. Other than that, I don't know. Right. How they're, how they're categorizing where they are. But yeah, that's a good one. Of course, there's also the uh, uh, search feature, which, uh, you know, sometimes it'll, it'll identify the right one. Yeah. Sometimes it won't. Like right. here, if I do display. Okay. Like for example, so I say display and it highlights general accessibility displays and energy saver because they all have something to do with what's happening on your display. So sure. that's kind of cool. I've never done that before. Huh. So search is another one. Yeah. If you think you know what you're looking for, but aren't quite sure. Yeah. No. It, yeah. 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 System preferences is, is a mess. Yeah. I, I, um, I just filter them down and, and I, mm. I view, I, I don't just view the al alphabetized list in the menu bar. I sort by alphabet. I organize alphabetically. When in the view menu, you can just choose organize alphabetically, and then you know that's good. I don't. Ah, yeah. Look. Oh, look at that. So much better, dude. It's so it like because at least now I know how to find what I'm looking for. You know, it's 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 like I don't have to sing that U two song any anymore because I I have I'm just. I have found what I'm looking for. It's, it's, it's not that I still have As soon haven't. as you said that, I got the video um, of them playing on the roof. Mm. You know. Oh, was that the tune that they did on the, on the roof, a la the Beatles? Yes, they did that. And from what I recall, the cops eventually had to break it up because it was like... I thought that was the streets people. have no name they did on the roof. Oh, no, no, you're right. It was okay. streets have no name. Okay, I'm trying. You know, my memory... Maybe they... Maybe they did both. My guess is they did a full show up there, but who knows? You know, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, All right. Uh, we will move on. Uh, there's a couple more quick tips. We've got one from listener Ed who says, "I'm sure everyone but me has known this, but I often group bunches of image files into various folders as part of my photos workflow. I usually create a folder, name it, then select the files I want to go there and drag them onto the folder." Many times, though, I miss the folder and my files end up somewhere that no one knows. I know you can cut and paste files, but I usually forget that at the time. Then trying that one time, I selected my files and right-clicked to cut them and discovered at the top of the menu an option. New folder with selection X number of items. I chose that and shazam! All my files moved into a new folder ready to be named. Who knew? Not me, says Ed. That's a great one. It's, it's you know, I, I, I would, 
I suppose I can say I knew that. My my fingers don't know it though. That's not one that I I would do things the, the way Ed initially described. If if you said, "Hey, go put these in a new folder," I wouldn't think select them, right click, new folder. But you can, and there you go. So yeah, it's good. I gotta fix my squeaky chair here, John. But given that I'm not supposed yeah. to lift things over like ten pounds, I fixed my squeaky chair, so you should. I know, I know. Get the WD forty. I know. Just, I, just, I, I gotta wait. It might not be fixed before next week because I I can't lift things that are more than ten pounds for a little while or something. So uh, my apologies. I'll try not to move, but that's also tough today because you know stretching and moving. So anyway, moving on uh, with our squeaky apologies, Scott says, rather than spending money for Microsoft Office, I've been using Apple's Pages and Numbers. Both are very capable programs without their counterparts' complexity. Uh, he says, having never used... Uh, he says, but one program I've been very impressed with is Keynote. Having never used Keynote, there was a very short learning curve. I was able to put together a graphics-heavy 18-slide, half-hour presentation in just a few short hours. But the absolute best thing about Keynote is the ability to use an iPad as a remote. At first, I could not figure out how to run Keynote in the presenter view and tell Zoom only to show the output. I could run the first the slideshow in a window, but I didn't have the presentation console. I was reading the Keynote preferences and found the information about a remote. I picked up my iPad Pro, did the dance between the iPad and the iMac to pair the two, and I was able to run the Keynote slides from my iPad while the iMac displayed the slides captured by Zoom. I had the current on-air slide and cue slide side-by-side side. on the iPad. I could see what was next, tap the screen, and the slideshow on the Mac advanced. I was curious to see if it worked on an iPhone, so I downloaded Keynote to the iPhone, paired it with my Mac, and of course it works. If it wasn't for an issue with manipulating page numbers and pages, I would not use any other products. Very impressive. Yeah, good, Scott. You're right. That, that Keynote remote is a valuable thing. I never thought about using it with a Zoom or a Skype conference, I've done a couple of presentations over, you know, Skype over the years uh, to users groups. And I always, I think Zoom actually fixes this, but I've always disliked the fact that I can't, like the people can't see me at the same time as the slides and you can't, and my whole screen is taken up if I'm presenting slides so I don't get to see them. That's even worse. So I always did it with, um, I would I would export my presentation to a uh, a web document and then I would just open my presentation in Safari on my Mac and share that window so I could have two windows up. But um, but anyway, so there's there's even more fun. Yeah, I know my chair squeaky. It's driving me crazy too, folks. Uh, what else we got? Anything else okay. in the quick tips? And this is all built in. It's not using yeah. sidecar or anything like that. No, oh, right. no. I mean, sidecar is also built in, but, um, but yeah, it's, right, right. it's not, it's not using sidecar. Yeah. 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 All right. We've got, um, we've got your NAS stuff to get to the, your network attached storage stuff that we promised last week and then ran out of time for, but not quite yet. Um, we, we will, we will get there. We have some questions, including one from Eric who says, my daughter has been using an early 2015 MacBook Pro at her desk far from any outlet. Is there a high-capacity power bank that you could recommend for her use? And how would I connect to MagSafe 2? The higher capacity and more bells and whistles, the better. All right. Um, so the first thing to remember is that the official answer on where do I get a MacBook, a MagSafe power bank is you don't. There is not one. 
the only people who can make MagSafe connectors are Apple, and Apple doesn't make a battery pack, and Apple doesn't sell their connectors to third parties to use in their products. That said, there's a couple that we found. Um, the the sort of the most brand name one is the Hyperjuice from Hyper Technologies, which is San, you know related or part of San Ho. Uh, so we will put a link to that one. It's the Hyperjuice MagSafe MacBook battery, and it's got you know a little adapter that plugs in, and you're good to go. It's I'm not quite sure how they get away with it, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it it works right. Um, there's another one from a company called Lenmar called the Chug Plug, John. And what's cool about the Chug Plug is that it doesn't require. I used one of these years ago where I had to, um, I had to like hack together my own MagSafe. Uh, uh, and like they gave me all the parts and they said, slip, strip the wires or snip the cords, strip the wires, put our little adapter in the middle of your MagSafe power thing. And then you plug either the power in or the battery. And I mean, it's, that's great. It worked, but it, it was very much a, you know, I'm doing this myself kind of deal. Well, the Lenmar chug plug, you do yourself, but there's no like chopping and stripping and you don't have to be, uh, you know, an electrician to feel comfortable doing this because what theirs does is it sits in line. You know how your, your MagSafe adapter has, you can either put the plug on the end or you can put a cable with a plug on the end, right? And you get both mm -hmm. from Apple and, it, and it's removable also so you can use it in different countries or whatever. Well, it fit theirs fits onto that adapter. It essentially squeezes itself in the middle. So you're plugging your transformer and the adapter, you know, with the MagSafe into it. My guess is that that makes it less efficient because you're giving it power to transform and there's probably some lost in heat during the translation. Uh, but they say that it'll give you, you know, four hours of runtime or something like that. So. Uh, I just like the idea. The other day when I prepped the show, it was available for sale. Today, I'm looking while we're doing the show. It's not. So mm, your mileage will vary. Uh, mine has, but it is a cool design to go take a look at. And then I found one more, John, called Bat Power. Uh, this was the one that I knew sort of the least about, but it sure seems to do this and is available for 170 bucks or something like that. So again, your mileage will vary, but I'll put the link in the show notes. Do you know anything about any of these, John? Um, the only thing I know about is that on my prior machine, I was able to purchase uh, what looked like an Apple charger. Okay. It had the same form factor and all that, but it wasn't from Apple. Oh, interesting. It was from a third party, but it did have a MagSafe connector. My, my prior machine had a MagSafe connector. Yeah. So I don't know how they faked it out. And I'm trying to remember, I think the name of the company was a the Chinese name. Sure. Or Asian. Um, but it came up as the, the manufacturer instead of Apple. If, if you look in system info in the power section. And I was huh? like, wow, how'd they pull that off? 
but it was like half of what I'd have to pay Apple for for one at the time. And it, it seemed to work OK. Ran a little hot, though. That that was a warning I saw. So this wasn't a battery. Online. This was just a, a an AC. Adapter. This was a MagSafe charger. Got it. Yeah. But if they can make the charger, then they could have made a battery adapter. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Huh. Weird, man. Weird, weird. Um, thankfully we are out of that world with newer laptops because USB-C and chargers are good to go because it's just USB-C. Power delivery yep. and all that great stuff. Just make sure you are getting a charger that can, a battery pack that can do enough, uh, for power delivery to, to, to charge a laptop. I have one from LifeProof. Um, mm -hmm. and it does, it does enough to do like an iPad, but it will not do enough to do a laptop. So and it, and it gets weird. Like the laptop starts to charge and stops to charge and starts to charge this back and forth thing. So, um, so just, you know, check the specs on it before you pack it, pack it in your go bag, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there you go. You want to take us to bill John? Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, Bill says, our mail preferences signatures are no longer editable after upgrading to Catalina. I mentioned this once to an Apple support person while on a call on a different topic, and he had nothing to offer. I was hoping possibly you guys or someone in your audience might have an answer. My account has 102 signatures from before the upgrade to Catalina. Apparently, Mail App makes the preferences window auto size to fit content, but with 102 signatures, it makes the preferences window so tall that all of the controls at the bottom are off screen and cannot be used. On top of that, there is no scroll bar for the signatures and none of them are visible. This description probably makes no sense, so I've included a partial screenshot. Huh. Which you did. Yeah, but it know. makes that makes sense though. I I mean I can envision that if you can't scroll then you can't see the bottom of the list and that yeah. Apple did not account for 102 signatures. Well, I think they could. No, but they but didn't. I, I think I think I'm saying. I I think there's another problem though. Mm. Cuz if you look at this, it, it Yeah, the, the he shows the window and it only shows one signature, but the window for it is very huge because it shows you a preview normally what you should see is you click on one of the signatures and it shows you a preview yeah and it also shows you as uh, when i tried to figure this one out um there's also an edit signature button that you should be seeing but he's not because something it's not rendering something properly mm. is is what i think happened here so um so how do you how do you fix this? Well, first you got to I think first you got to know where the signatures is. Okay. So I think that one of them got corrupted um and it's it's rendering in a weird way and it's covering up everything else. So how do you recover from this? Well, one way is you could go to a backup. You have a backup, right? Okay. Yeah. And maybe restore your old signatures. Now, where are the signatures located? Well, they're in home, library, mail, V7, mail data, signatures. Now, the V7 may be different um, on, on a, if it's a earlier version, but that's where all the signature data is. And there's a, a number of files in there. There's the signatures themselves. Okay. 
um, and they have a .mail signature at the end of them. And then there are a couple of plist files that basically uh, 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 index them. So, so one would be restore from a backup, and maybe it'll unmangle what is mangled. Sure. Uh, two, you could try editing one of those files. After you make so a backup. Make a new backup. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you could make it worse. Um, though I don't think... That. So, one, there's a there's a file that keeps track of all the other signatures, all the signatures there, Dave, and okay. it's called allsignatures.plist. Okay. So, maybe you want to hop in there and delete the one that has the text that you see when it's being displayed. Yeah. And maybe that'll fix it. Okay. All right. And then three, you could, as you said, yeah, make a backup of all that data because you don't want to lose 102 signatures and do it all over again. Right. Um, now you could make a backup of the files, wipe them, wipe, wipe everything out and start again. Um, and just paste in your signatures again. Now, the, the unfortunate thing, Dave, is that if you look at the, if you open one of these files, it's not plain text. It's actually stylized HTML. So you can't just cut and paste what's in the file if you're going to recreate them within mail. Mm, right, right, right. Like it has, you know, you know, left bracket BR, right bracket for a, a line break or something like that. So that, that that's how that data that's how that data in that file is formed. Interesting. But I would try. But I I think my second suggestion maybe the best way to do this is is whack the one that's consuming your screen. Yeah, yeah. Delete that one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's really weird. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because you're right. It should be showing the list, and then the yeah. There's something not right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, just take it out. Yep. And to edit plist files, I would use BB Edit. What would you use to edit a plist file, John? Um, by default, if you have Xcode installed, it'll use Xcode, um, which has a, a sure. decent plist file yeah. viewer. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I have it set for. Okay. Um, yeah, BB edit is also good, or you could even use text edit. I mean, it's just a text file sure. it's stylized, but yeah, yeah with BB edit. Yeah. I think BB edit also arranges it in a nicer way. Um, it's been so long since I've used the anything else that I, I don't know to be perfectly honest. It's what I have mm -hmm. my P list set to open in and it just opens and I'm good to go. So, but yeah, yep. yeah. Cool. All right, uh, let's go to Andrew here, and let's see, where where am I? I need to get all my stuff together, John. Uh, Andrew, and he has a question about contacts. He says, uh, any suggestion for a replacement for Apple's contacts app on Mac and maybe even iOS? I've always had issues with keeping contacts separate and straight, and it isn't very responsive. Pretty disappointing for Apple to have software like that. I feel like it's been more of that within the last 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. No, you're right. So to answer your question flat out, uh, busy contacts would be the thing that I would recommend. If you want a replacement for Apple's contacts, uh, busy contacts is definitely a, it's from the same people that, that brought us uh, busy Cal. It's, so it's at busymac.com, but, but busy contacts is where I would go for that. 
That said, you know, contacts, the contacts database is very much intertwined into all parts of the OS. So even if you're using a different app to view and perhaps even manage your contacts, if there's something slow about the way your Mac is dealing with contacts, you're still going to have that problem because of the built-in contacts database, how it's tied to mail and, and all these other things. So I, and I've dealt with this too. And what I've realized as of late is that it, it was anytime I would go to edit a contact or something, I would just see my CPU spike, even on a Mac with, you know, four, four cores or eight cores or whatever. It's just crazy. And I found, I think it was actually one of you who suggested that turning off extra servers, CalDAV servers, like a Google contact server, and only having the, you know, iCloud contacts in there would help this. And it did immensely. I'm not sure what contacts is trying to do when it's, maybe it's, it's doing a bunch of uh, duplicate detection and conflict resolution or something. Anytime you make any change and, you know, conflating these two databases together, but it's inefficient about it, or at least it was on my machine. So if you're having that problem, I recommend taking a look at what you have in there and pare it down to the bare minimum. Now you may need to have, you know, your work contacts, which might be a Google or exchange for, alongside your iCloud contacts. But if you can pull those out of your contacts in, and, and when I say pull that out of your contacts, I mean, pull it out of like system preferences, internet accounts is where those seem to be. Uh, that's where you would have those. If you can pull it out of there and maybe only put it into something like busy contacts, that would be uh, helpful. And there are other apps too, other third-party apps. Busy Contacts is the one that comes to mind because it's, it's sort of the one that I have uh, on that side. So so there you go. I don't know. What do you think about that, John? Yeah. <clears throat> and hang a bonus. Um, it's part of Setup. Oh, very nice. I like So yeah, it. That, that's pretty recent. But okay. yeah, I was looking the other day. Yeah, I think I was scratching my head over this question. I'm like, oh, Busy Contacts and... Cool. I think, yeah, when I, when I searched for it on the internet, the first thing that came up, I was like, Hey, guess what's part of setup now? Busy contacts. Nice. Is busy Cal part of setup too? Yes. Oh, very nice. Yeah. They both, they both show up in the, uh, that's yeah, great. In their, uh, browser. Yeah. Well, you know, busy Mac software, uh, or at least the products of busy Mac software were sold to, um, I can't remember his last name, Fahad, who has been making the to do app to do, uh, for a long time, and uh, and now he's making and maintaining busy contacts and busy Cal. So maybe he's the you know he obviously runs his business his own way, and and he chose to partner with Setup on these. I think that's great, cool. All right, yeah. Uh, it does remind me though that I'm looking at my contacts, Dave, and I got to clean up my act here. Yeah. yeah, the thing is, I have a lot of duplicates. I think because at one point contacts could integrate with i think linkedin and facebook yes yes so and i think what happened is once they ditched that the the leftovers are still in your contacts okay, okay. so i don't know if i want to merge or yeah i'm gonna have to go through it but i i see like right here i'm looking and i have two adam christiansons right <laughs> right there really only is one adam christiansen is, yes, is the, the, from what I hear. The truth of the matter. That's right. Yeah, so do I want to merge them or? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I found just deleting the Facebook and LinkedIn, you know, things like I, I know it's not using them anymore, but deleting them actually helped. It, it started to begin that cleanup process. So, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, while we're on the iCloud thing, one more general question, then we'll then we'll get to some of the more uh, specific stuff we paired prepared for this show. But uh, but while we're on it, Terry writes, says I was having a problem with my iMac suddenly not loading pages in Safari. Long story short, and after much troubleshooting, I decided to nuke and pave the 2017 iMac. That done, I now have lost all my calendars, past and future scheduled events. I know the calendars across devices are syncing, as when I add a new event, it shows up on my Mac, iPhone, and in the iCloud calendar. I see in iCloud preferences, I can restore an archived calendar from iCloud. Is this the path I should take to get my past events populated on my devices? So uh, that sucks. Uh, yes, the, the iCloud restore, if you can do it, absolutely. That's the path to take. If that fails and if you have a backup, especially if you have a time machine backup, time machine makes this super easy. You can restore your calendars from that too. If you don't have a time machine backup, but you have a clone or something, the home library calendars folder is where all that stuff is. You can slurp it in from there. Um, I would import from there, although you could try just, you know, quit calendars and replace that folder uh, on your Mac. And then I would reboot because those, again, those databases are sort of running all the time, but that might do it. Uh, But importing from, you know, a copy of that old folder would be sort of the key. So that's, that's what I would try. What do you think, John? Sounds good to me. Yeah. This is one part I like about BusyCal is it'll let you make backups on a regular basis. In fact, I think I have my busy, I know I'm kind of obsessive about it, but my calendars matter to me. And I think uh, I have my BusyCal on one of my Macs set to backup my calendars every hour and to save a hundred backups. So, and then I've got another Mac backing up every day, saving a hundred backups. So I've got, you know, a hundred days worth of, of calendar changes and they that's saved my bacon sometimes. So that's yeah, it's good. It's good. All right. We have, uh, we're going to talk about because even though I was in like serious pain, leaving the house early, early Wednesday morning, um, I had the thought, uh, to bring, to bring something with me because every family member that I've known that's been in the hospital recently, John, has said, but, you know, after they're there for like five hours, you get a text, you know, there's the text trail of happening amongst the family, like keeping everybody up to date. And invariably it'll be person in hospital, uh, phone battery died. And so, uh, you know, we need to call, here's how to call, you know, his or her room number or whatever. And I did not want to be in that position. And so, I, I grabbed my geeky go bag and in a minute we're going to talk about all the things that I had at the ready in my geeky go bag, which really paid off. Um, right now, though, John, what I want to do is I want to talk about our sponsors for this episode, if that's OK by you. Outstanding. All right. You know, when you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want some random passersby looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without a VPN and ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Did you know that your ISP, like Comcast or Verizon, 
can know every, in fact, not just can know, knows every single website you visit because you're going through them. And what's worse is they can sell that information. They do sell that information to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. And using a VPN, using ExpressVPN puts a stop to this because when you connect to ExpressVPN, your, your Mac, your iPhone, your iPad connects by creating a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So even if you're like sniffing traffic on your local network, you can't see what's happening because all you see is that there's this tunnel to ExpressVPN, but you can't see the contents of the tunnel. And you can bet when I was in the hospital this past week, connect to the hospital Wi-Fi, the first thing I did was I made sure I connected to ExpressVPN <laughs> because I wanted to make sure that my traffic was mine and that I could get to the things I wanted to get to without being redirected by you know whatever the network administrators at the hospital may or may not have decided was in my best interest. I had my best network interests at heart. They had my best health interests at heart. I used ExpressVPN to create that secure tunnel. And the best part is, using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, you press connect, and you're done. Super easy on all my devices. So if you're like me and you believe that your online activity is your business, you can secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com mgg today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mgg, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's right expressvpn.com slash MGG and our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. We're all using PDFs these days, right? I mean, we always have, but I feel like we're using them even more now. And sometimes you want to do some tweaks to those PDFs. So if you're looking for that powerful PDF editing tool for your Mac, your iPhone, your iPad, PDF pen is where you want to stop because that's going to be the tool that you want to use. It's the tool I use, whether you're on the road or at your desk, if you need those advanced editing features, like, I mean, sure, it'll let you sign and fill out forms. That's great. But it'll also let you correct typos in your PDF. Even cooler, you can redact sensitive info, right? Because if you're able to correct typos, you can then do redactions, but they've built the redactions feature in. I needed to send some tax forms off but I didn't want to put my social security number all over this stuff. They already have my social security number. They can look things up, but presumably they're storing that securely. I don't know what they're doing with these PDFs that I'm sending them. So I went into PDF pen. I chose the find and redact feature. I typed in my social security number. I said, find and redact. And then, you know, click the do it to the all of them button and boom, it did all of them. And then I did it for my wife's number. Cause that's also in there and boom, everything was great. So, yeah. And then on top of that, document compression, you can do annotations, you can password protect your documents, and you can even sync with email, Dropbox, and iCloud. All come standard in the software. PDF Pen Pro takes it even further and allows you to add permissions. You can turn websites into PDFs and even integrates with DocuSign to send or sign documents easily and securely. So go check it out. Go to smilesoftware.com slash podcast. That's where you're going to kind of start your, your journey there to, to get the versions that are right for you. They'll ask you where you heard about it. Of course, you know where that is. Uh, but check it out, smilesoftware.com slash podcast. And our thanks to PDF Pen for sponsoring this episode. You're a geek and you're at home. Chances are you're going to be doing some geeky projects. 
chances are one of those geeky projects is going to require you to set something up on a server. Well, look no further than Linode at linode.com slash MGG, where you get a $20 credit to start up your server. And yes, you can start a server for less than that $20. In fact, you can start a server for just $5 at Linode. So you can do the math and actually get, you know, several months, even four months, because that's how math works. So check it out, linode.com slash MGG. And if you're, you know, a super geek and you like using the terminal and you want to set up your server that way, by all means, set it up, log in, do whatever you want to do. But if you just want to get the server up and running, or you don't like the terminal at all, you don't have to worry about it because Linode's cloud manager has this user interface where you go in and you choose what you want to do, what kind of server, WordPress, uh, VPN server, and you just choose it and it sets it up for you and tells you how to log in. So this is, this is the way to do it. Plus, everything there is on native SSD storage, so you know that the server is going to be responsive. Check it out, linode.com slash MGG for your $20 credit and our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. All right. So, John, mm-hmm. my geeky go bag is was like, even though I was in pain, I actually wound up going in an ambulance because I couldn't fathom the thought of sitting in a car seat. Um, just it was weird the way it presented with like back pain and stuff. Anyway, um, even with all that, I thought I need to bring a charger with me, you know, like a phone battery and a phone charger. And then I so I just said to Lisa, I said, can you get me my my backpack that I use when I travel? Because that had everything I needed in it. In fact, it turned out it had even more. I threw my laptop in it, too, because I didn't know how long I'd be there. But I also knew if I was going to the ER, I was probably going to be spending a lot of time sort of sitting and waiting while we figured things out. And I also presumed correctly that eventually this painful episode would subside. And it, it did within a few hours, which was good. And then we still started it up. But um, so the things that are in, that were in my geeky go bag uh, that paid off hugely were the, the first two things were the two batteries, right? I had, in fact, I have more than two batteries in my geeky go bag, but I have a battery just to charge my phone. It's a 10,000 milliamp hour. It's an, it, actually both my batteries, it turns out are anchor batteries, but it's just a small little one. And of course, a lightning cable. A long lightning to USB cable. But this is just automatically in there because I use it on airplanes. The other battery is Anchor's 20, I think 24,000 milliamp hour uh, charge, can charge my laptop battery. So I had, you know, way more than I needed. And of course, I also had AC adapters for both my laptop and my uh, my thing. But the, the best part was I didn't have to think much about this. It was just like, get me that bag. I mean, I was more polite about it. I, th- I think I was more polite about it. I might not have been, uh, hopefully it was, please get me that bag. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, I threw my laptop in it and that was that. Um, the other thing that totally paid off and, you know, the, like I said, <laughs> my nurses would come in they're like, you look so comfortable. You're basking here. And, I also had my, in, I, I keep one of those inflatable pillows to use, like a neck pillow to use on the airplanes. Man, in a hospital bed, if you want to sit up and actually like, you know, do something like this, trying to you know, rest the pillows the right way and position them. No, but I was like, and I even was on the phone with Lisa at one point. I'm like, I really had, I wish I had one of those neck pillows. And I was like, wait a minute. I do. It's packed into my go bag. So I grabbed my pillow and it was like it perfect. 
I also have a, a, a thin, like thin just because it fits easier, sweatshirt, like hoodie sweatshirt in there, which was nice to have. Protein bars are nice to have, even though I wasn't allowed to eat all day. I didn't break the rules, but having them, lip balm, of course, hand sanitizer these days and extra masks. Um, I, I wound up going to the hospital in a KN95 mask and surprisingly, they, they let me keep that. Uh, not surprisingly, their policy is that doesn't matter what mask you arrive in, they will give you a surgical mask and, and that's that. Um, but mm -hmm. they saw my KN95 and they're like, actually, that's better than what we're going to give you. So you're allowed to keep that. And so, so those are the things that, uh, that I have in my geeky go bag. Um, I don't that, 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 you know, I didn't use all of them. I didn't eat the protein bars cause I didn't want to break the rules. Um, but, uh, and which was good because I needed surgery and it was good that my stomach was empty and all that stuff. But, um, but any, anything I missed, John, that you would put in your geeky go bag? Um, oh, headphones. Yeah, what, what you have. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, what you have here is pretty close to what I keep in my computer bag. Yeah. That I bring with me to yeah. trade shows and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, so. Uh, I have some of the same things. So, so one, um, so I like the my charge. Uh, my charge makes one that does chi and also has USB. I think ten watts or so it runs. So, um, but I like that one, uh, and I use it pretty much every day at home. Um, uh, the dock that I have here, I kind of like. It's the uh, yeah one of the anchor docks. Um, okay. uh, they call it the, uh, direct seven and two USB C adapter. It has an SD slot. The reason I like the SD slot is because another thing that I put in my bag is my, what I'll call travel zoom camera, Dave. Sure. Uh, right now what I have is a cool S 9,700. It has 30 times optical zoom, which is pretty crazy. Okay. Um, I don't know. What's the final thing? Oh, maybe a flash drive. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I got one recently that I popped open and and I kind of so I have one on my keychain and actually here's a, here's a tip uh, I have a text file on it that says if found please return to me. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty smart. But I also but I also typically have a, a flash drive. the The one that I have that I like right now is um, a SanDisk iXBand flash drive Go, and it has two connectors, Dave. Okay, it has a USB connector and a Lightning connector. So that's kind of cool. So if, if you need to exchange some files or, or you know, get some files, yeah. probably not when you're in the hospital, but yeah. Um, yeah. Huh? But yeah. Good. Oh, and water bottle. <laughs> that's yeah. Almost obvious, especially when you're on the show floor, you want to keep hydrated totally. when you're uh, trucking around. Yeah. I didn't bring a water bottle with me, which it, it, I mean, usually I throw one in like as I'm leaving the house. It it turned out that was good too because I couldn't drink any eat or or drink anything all day. But um, but they it kept me hydrated because you know it's a hospital they know what to do <laughs> they, they, they have they have ways of making sure such things happen. But yeah, that neck pillow. Every nurse I saw was like, I want every patient to have one of these. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad yeah. I have mine. <laughs> so nice. yeah, it was good. It's a good list. It's a good list. Yeah. Yeah, so if you have thoughts for your geeky go bag that we didn't mention here, send them to us. Feedback at MacGeekab.com. I'm pretty sure I heard you right, Dave. You said feedback at MacGeekab.com.
com. I'm glad the audio is working for you because it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't for a while. That's weird. That's eh, not that weird. We're using Mimo Live to do the show. And uh, last week, for the first time, I was able to use the new version of Mimo Live 5.8 that allows me to customize the audio mix that I send back to John. Previously, it would just send John the, the main mix minus him. But what that meant was I couldn't control John's level in the main mix the way I like to, because if I mixed it here, then John would get himself back because Mimo wouldn't know that John needed to be taken out of that mix. Well, now you can make it as complex as you want. Uh, it, by default, it's still the old way, which is which is best. But um, but now, John, I can I can tweak everything. And clearly you weren't hearing the audio when I did the sponsor spot. So I must have something not routed exactly right. And that's OK, um, because, mm -hmm. yeah, because that's just how it's going to go, I guess. <laughs> Uh, you know, there you go. There you go. Yeah. It's still weird. I'm still trying to figure that out, but I don't want to mess with it while we're doing the show because right, right. that's not, that's not so good, but I do. I really like the new Mimo live 5.8. So, and I appreciate them right. adding that feature for us that we, that we asked for. So it's good. Yep. Okay. So, uh, uh, here we go, Dave. I'm excited about this one. Good. Curtis. Oh, it's kind of good news, bad news. Yeah. So the good news came from Curtis. Um, and he says, I was an early, uh, an Eero early adopter. I yes. had the original model. While listening to Mackie Gab 831, I remembered seeing an option to temporarily pause five gigahertz in the troubleshooting section of the iOS app. When I returned home, I looked for it and yes, it was there. And when I looked, Dave, yes, it's there. So that's the good news is that you do not have to be a pro installer. So you, that was so you don't even a, have to call uh, support. You can just, you have the option to turn this off. If you go to troubleshooting and then click on the, my device won't connect to my network button. Uh, you're going to see a new button on the bottom of the screen that says temporarily pause five gigahertz. <laughs> oh. And it works. That's the good news. Okay. So I did that Dave. So I found it in the Eero app. And if you look, you know, now you'll, you, you, you should see Look it in, in your ear app as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think so what it does is it turns it off for, uh, for 10 minutes. Okay. Um, and sure enough, you know, I did it and Dabuki came up and said, Hey, you're on a 802, uh, NG. Right. Um, right. Okay. So it's saying, Hey, you're on the, yeah. And then I looked with iStumbler and all of the five gigahertz radios were gone. They were just 2.4. That's the good news. The bad news, Dave, is that I still can't get these Wi-Fi bulbs working. Really? That's yeah, funny. I got two different brands. So I got a Tomy. Uh, they wouldn't even show up. The, uh, so a lot of these uh, Wi-Fi bulbs, what happens is you run an app, the, but you then put the bulb into Find Me mode, and it broadcasts a unique SSID, which you should be able to see uh, from from your phone. Okay. Well, I didn't, the, you told me I couldn't even find the bulb itself advertising itself. Huh? The other one I got, um, Sengled, S E N G L E D. Mm -hmm. At least that one, I could see the bulb when I put it in learn mode, but it never got past the, okay, now let me associate the bulb with your 2.4 gigahertz network, which it saw. And, and I entered. 
So there's still something something up. I've, I've been disabling some of the uh, features uh, on the Eero to see if it's any of them. So I disabled the DNS caching. I wonder if maybe that had something to do with it. Sure. The other thing I disabled, which maybe it's in a weird, maybe it's not ready for prime time, but I turned on that WPA3, and we've seen this happen oh, in the past. Is yeah. that the bulb may not, uh, I'm thinking it may not be happy with, Eero's WPA3 implementation. Sure. I just turned it on one day because it's supposed it's supposed to be a better protocol than WPA2, but maybe their implementation, yeah, again, the bulb doesn't like it. So right, right. I'm going to disable that and try pairing again. Okay. Yeah. I, I could see WPA3 getting in the way of that. It Like you said, it shouldn't, but I've, I've seen that for sure. So, yeah. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. Past that. I mean, I, I've also been, I mean, I, I have enough bulbs. The thing is, I just wanted to try these different bulbs just right. to see what they're like. Right. Um, I mean, the other thing is that I, I think I only have one Wi-Fi device. Everything else is Z-Wave. I have a, a Wemo uh, power plug and that yeah. seems to work fine. And that's as far as I know, using Wi-Fi. So, okay. So I don't know why these these guys are not huh. wanting to join my network. Yeah. Well, let us know about if the WPA3 thing fixes it. That that's my um, that that's a real that, I mean, certainly that's a smart next thing to try. It's a good good guess. Yeah. Uh you know, oh, we were talking last week uh about having issues where I I um my switch box for my, um, uh, sorry, my mocha adapter for my, uh, to get cable, to get internet for network from my, you know, ethernet backbone to the TV. I use mocha and the mocha boxes need to be reset occasionally. And I mentioned how it's always at an inopportune time and listener Rob sent in a note and said, Hey, you know, you could schedule the power cycling of those Mocha boxes by plugging them into a smart switch and, and, you know, having the switch turn them on and then off. And I've tried this. In fact, I have another device in the same location, the HDMI switch box for our TV, which is even more flaky and needs to be power cycled. And so I actually have that power cycled every day on a schedule. And I thought, sure, I'll do the same thing for the Mocha box. Well, here's the problem. The Mocha box brings the Wi-Fi signal to the uh, to that location. And it's fine when it turns off, but it doesn't always reassociate fast enough to turn itself back on down the road because it, it stays associated with the Wi-Fi access point nearby that hasn't quite yet figured out that it's not on an Ethernet backhaul anymore. And it, you know, th there's a thing. I'm sure if I left it off long enough, it would fix it. But, I, you know, so I ran into this problem. And I was like, and I, I mentioned this to Rob because it's a good solution, right? If, you know, smart switches are great for this. And he said, well, if you're doing any home automation with, say, z-wave or non-wi-fi stuff maybe you could use that instead of a wi-fi thing and then you're not reliant on the wi-fi signal you just pulled the rug out from under and it would work which of course is brilliant i have a, a smart things plug and i thought it was a z-wave smart things plug john 
Unfortunately, it turns out that it's a Wi-Fi SmartThings plug, so it's not going to solve my problem. But finding, I do have a SmartThings hub at the house uh, that I use for a couple of different light bulbs. And so I can definitely leverage this and I plan to, I just got to find myself a, a plug that the problem is it's a plug. So it's plugged in uh, full time and can afford the energy for Wi-Fi. And there you go. So, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I, I actually do that too. So now that I think about it, I do have some Wi-Fi enabled devices yeah. that are not Z wave. So one are the, uh, and there's a reason I'm talking about this and I'll tell you in a moment. Why. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I have two Atomi air conditioner, mm. um, switches that are both power and they also have an infrared thing that controls your air conditioner. Pretty cool. Um, so I have those. And then also Dave, I have, uh, an Amazon smart plug that I got a deal on one time. I'm looking right now. It says they're 25 bucks, but I think that they had a bundle where I got it for 15 bucks. They threw it in with some other thing I was buying. I use that to control my laser printer. <laughs> oh yeah. So my laser printer is permanently on. And the thing is, so my laser printer is upstairs and every now and then I'll have to print something and I'm downstairs. Well, what I do is I say, a lady turn on the laser printer. And then, you know, it takes about a minute to sure. get up to speed. And then I print my document to it. And then I'll tell it to cut it out. So um, that's really smart. so. I thought that was, yeah. I thought that was kind of a clever, clever use of because um, I'm like, oh man, you know, I don't want to keep running upstairs, turning it on, then running back downstairs, queuing it up, and uh, yeah, yeah, that would be terrible to have to live that way. Yeah, yeah. The only thing, the only warning I'll offer, and I, I did check this with both of these cases. Make sure that the plug can handle the amount of current you put through it. And Dave. Two things that draw a lot of current are laser printers and air conditioners and air conditioners. Yeah. So check the, the amps. Mm. So if you get a smart plug to do this, check the amperage. I think in your case, yeah, a, a you know, media switch is oh. probably not going to be drawing a lot of juice. No, if but, it is, um, I've, I've got something wrong for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Huh? No. But, and Brian Monroe, who is in our chat room at live.mackeycap.com. That'll that work. Thing? That'll get you there. Yeah. Um, so he says, does your laser printer not have energy star? <laughs> um, John's laser printer. He's lucky that his laser printer has ethernet. So it, I think your laser it, printer is it, older than my children. Uh, I think my laser, it, it's a GCC elite 1200 DPI laser printer. And I think it has a 10 megabit per second ethernet port on it. <laughs> Um, the thing is, it still works, but this printer, I, I forgot. I think it's about 20 years old. Yeah. I think yeah. it still works. Yeah. <laughs> um, crazy, but yeah, so I do not, uh, so, so to Brian's question, I do not think it is energy star compliant. <laughs> I don't think energy star was a thing back then, but you know, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. John, speaking of all this smart home stuff I did this week, set up hoobs. Uh, in fact, I did it. Um, uh -huh. yeah, I did it earlier in the week and then spent actually a lot of time when I was sort of sitting around and not supposed to be moving much, uh, tweaking it. So what hoobs is hoobs is, is several things, but really at its core, it is a software package for managing home bridge via a graphical interface. Now you can get hoobs in a variety of different ways. You can buy a piece of hardware from the hoobs group, 
that contains it. You can download the software from the Hoobscoop and put it on a Raspberry Pi, or you can do what I did, which is downloading it um, and putting it into or downloading a Docker image that already has it configured. Uh, and I put that on my Synology. And Homebridge, uh, just to catch everybody up, is a piece of software that takes non-HomeKit compatible smart home devices and bridges them. It becomes the HomeKit bridge for all of these incompatible devices. And it's, you know, of course, unsupported by Apple, but it works amazingly well. The biggest problem with HomeBridge, which I had run previously, is the version, the way I was running it, uh, it was all managed from essentially a command line and config files, which is sort of a difficult thing to address when it's living inside a Docker container. So Docker being a, a piece of software that, that it's kind of like virtualization software, but in a very limited scope, but essentially it spins up a little Linux instance and runs Homebridge, but getting inside it is weird. Uh, so messing with these config files and one little change, and then you have to read a log file to see if the system's even running. It was just a bear. And so once you, once I got Homebridge up and running, I didn't want to add anything or change anything because it required going through this whole rigmarole. Well, a Homebridge has changed and now has a plugin that that allows for some graphical uh, management, like a GUI web based management. But Hoobs uh, also does this, so I chose to go the Hoobs route and have the Hoobs interface. And the Hoobs interface completely eliminates any issues with adding or removing plugins because I need to add a plugin for say, you know, my uh, my Smart Things devices that aren't HomeKit compatible or my Ring devices that aren't HomeKit compatible, right? And, and adding and removing plugins is a breeze with Hoobs. Even managing the configuration, if it's a Hoobs sort of, depending on the, the robustness of the plugin, some of them have a graphical interface built for Hoobs, so you just plug in your information. Others, you do have to paste in the config file, but you can sort of build it on your own and you're not having to dig around and, and do all the, the it. I, I am far, I have a well-oiled Hoobs setup, a Homebridge setup via Hoobs right, running right now, John. And I am completely open if, like, I think of, oh, wait a minute, I could add that via this? All right, I'm going to do it. Like, there's no hesitation because I know that I can easily roll back and, and get to a, a known working state. So I'm really stoked with it. And I will say this. Now that I have all of my cameras from lots of different vendors, I've got a Foscam camera that is just a, a you know a generic camera essentially. I've got three ring devices that act as cameras for me. I've got um, a bunch of uh, Eufy cams that are that are HomeKit compatible on their own. The others that I've mentioned are not. And then an Arlo camera, which on its own is not HomeKit compatible. If I pair it with an Arlo base, it would be, but the Arlo base broadcasts a Wi-Fi signal that I don't want messing with my thing, so I don't use that. Um, being able to have all of my cameras in one interface in the Home app is amazing, John. It, like, changes everything. And it's so fast. And, of course, then I have all my other stuff, and I can see it. I still use the A-Lady as my... Uh, chief voice interface with things and also as my uh, all my routines that run every day like my automations i'm using there i certainly could move m most if not all of them to home kit but i figure since i'm going through this bridge that creates a a very 
uh, a single point of failure for everything. Whereas the a lady is talking directly to all of my devices. And I feel a little bit better about that. So I leave my automations there. It's our chief sort of spoken platform for it, but it is sure. It sure is nice to have all my stuff, you know, accessible via the S lady and the home app. If I want to look at all our cameras, especially, like I said, I just flip open my phone and there all of them are. It doesn't matter what vendor it is. So this, this makes home kit awesome because it brings everything in, in a way that I find easy to manage. So I, I just wanted to kind of share, I told you I'd be messing with it. I messed with it. So there you go. Any thoughts on that, John? Have you messed with hoobs yet? Not yet. <clears throat> All right. I think you'd love it. I think for the same reason, just yeah. kind of being able to pull everything together. Yeah. It's just my, yes, you point, uh, uh, my last Docker experience was not pleasant. There's a video. I expect. I've linked to I, it. Yeah. It'll make your life easier. Follow the video. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember trying something else and I'm like, oh, okay, here's a Docker container. All right, let's run it. And then I'm like, okay, now what? And it's like, yep, I'm running. I'm like, yeah, but you're not doing anything. Well, it, it is. Yeah. I, in fact, I even had that with this hoops thing. It was like, right now I have to go to the web interface for this new engine that's running. And I, so I went to the IP of my disk station cause that's where I'm running Docker. And then the port mm -hmm. that I knew I had forwarded to it. And then it was like, here's the web interface. It's like, set your admin password. Let's go. I'm like, cool. There we go. Yeah. So John, I've been having network issues here. Uh, as listeners might know, because we've we've tried to hide them from people. But, you know, my I would have to reset the iMac in the office because suddenly things would be weird up here. Well, things got even more weird earlier this week. Uh, and I started digging in and I realized I did a speed test from my Mac at the office and it was coming in at like, you know, 95 megabits down and then 40 megabits up. I'm like, oh, this is this problem. Oh, this is okay. on your local net on your local network. No, I, I, I was an Ethernet connected Mac. I was doing a speed test across the Internet and it was 95 oh, down okay. and 40 up. Now, my my connection is a thousand down and 40 up, not a hundred down and 40 up. And I'm like, okay, so, but remember, I thought I was having problems with the iMac in the office because rebooting that would solve whatever mess I was having up here. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so I start messing with the Ethernet cable to the thing in the office. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I thought, well, let me just do a speed test from the studio. That's the newest machine. That's the 2019 iMac, also 100 megabit. Okay, so this is a wider problem. I did it from Wi-Fi on my phone because that now bypasses most of this stuff. Right, same thing. I checked my Eero logs because Eero does speed tests every day or two and remembers them. And for two weeks, John, it's been below 100. And near as I can tell, it started when my cable modem got a firmware update from Comcast or from Xfinity. Like, okay, weird. Great. Okay. At least I know where my problem lies. So I tried a new ethernet cable between first, you know, I thought, well, ethernet cable. So I tried a new ethernet cable between the cable modem and the, uh, and the router and that fixed it. And then I went back to the old ethernet cable that was between the router and the cable modem. And it's also fixed. And I thought, okay, so it just needed truly, it needed to reset the interface. Like whatever happened when that thing came up the last time, yeah. So I reset, I rebooted everything. Okay. Now I'm getting, so pro problem number one solved. Now I'm getting, you know, gigabit speeds on everything. 
except thank goodness I had started testing from the machine in the studio here because I tested again from the machine in the studio here. And while everything else was doing gigabit speeds, I was still at a hundred megabits here. And I thought, well, that's not good. And I looked John in system preferences, network, ethernet, and I went to advanced and I went over to hardware and it said that it was connected at a hundred base T not a thousand base T. And I thought, okay, do I have a bad cable or do I have a bad ethernet port on this barely year old machine? And it took forever for ethernet to negotiate because it would try to negotiate at a thousand and then it would, it would stop down, which now suddenly started explaining all these other weird issues I'd been seeing on the network. Thankfully I have an OWC Thunderbolt three hub here. So I moved the ethernet cable from the iMac to the hub instantly connects at a thousand megabits. So I have an AppleCare case that I'm going to need to uh, deal with because clearly the Ethernet port on this machine is no bueno. It was causing all kinds of problems with my network, John. It was barfing all sorts of packets across, like something was not right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I see what you're talking about. So yeah. So in system preferences, network hardware, you saw the speed, the speed was being reported as a hundred. Yeah, and when I plugged it in, it took probably a good 10 seconds before it would it would come up with that because it was trying to negotiate at 1,000 and then would fall back finally to 100. Okay, and yeah, the other place, uh, for those following along here, um, there's also another place you can find this, and I don't know if you looked here, Dave. You know, I'm wondering what you would see here. Mm. Um, network utility is another handy thing. Okay. And it will also, if you select your... Uh, ethernet interface it'll show the link speed oh yeah but but you know uh yeah like in my case i'm looking right now and it says one gigabit the other thing it shows you which i'm sure you probably had some of these so it'll show the number of packets sent or received since i guess you restarted but it also shows the number of errors and collisions i'm wondering if you if any of those numbers were oh. greater than zero so here's what's interesting john Mm -hmm. I have nothing plugged into that port right now, and mm -hmm. it's showing me the link speed is 100 megabits per second. Ooh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> if I look at the Thunderbolt Ethernet, that's saying one gigabit, and, you know, everything is, and, and it says link status active. It does say inactive on link status, but it does say 100 megabit on that built-in ethernet port so i guess i should try an smc reset before i declare this port bad from a hardware level um mm -hmm. but yeah very very interesting and uh, like so many things that were like i, I want to say sluggish on my network like airplay to my tv used to be a mess as soon as i fixed this no more mm -hmm. And it's been a mess for about the last 18 months, you know, while I've had this Mac. So I think this Ethernet port has been flaky all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, so, but it's, it's under, it's covered under AppleCare. The problem is I need to figure out, you know, when I can be without this machine. I wish, of course, I'd realized this before I traveled to Portland for a week to take my son to school, because that would have been a perfect time to bring this in and mm -hmm. just have it dealt with. But anyway... Um, I can limp yeah. along. I mean, limp along. I'm using a, a, you know, Ethernet over Thunderbolt. It's It makes my Thunderbolt drives slightly less efficient because I'm using some Thunderbolt bandwidth for that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah. But you have. No, I get it. You, you want to get this repaired. Oh, I so. definitely want it repaired. But long before my warranty's up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just I found it interesting. And thank goodness I started troubleshooting with this machine because my assumption was, and of course, this is the problem with troubleshooting. If you make assumptions, you might be wrong. My assumption was this was sort of the gold standard machine because it's the, it's the newest one. So let's use, you know, nope. This was the problem. I mean, it wasn't the thing that caused my cable modem problem, but thankfully I had that problem. Otherwise, I might not have ever found or it might have taken me a lot longer to find this. Yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, sometimes when I've tried to diagnose these problems, some switches, especially these so-called smart switches, will show you the negotiated speed on each port. Yes. Like, for example, every now and then, you know, when I look at it, all, all my ports are a thousand well except for the one that my printer is plugged into of course it's on. <laughs> then it comes up as 10 and i'm like oh so that's the thing I'm- is i don't have this computer plugged into my smart switch i have it plugged into a dumb switch uh-huh. and i'm i want to do some testing i want to plug this into my smart switch to see if that switch would have somehow identified this problem for me proactively, because if it would have, mm-hmm. that makes it way easier for me to justify the cost of just putting smart switches everywhere because having these problems and not even, you know, like clearly this was causing me all kinds of problems for a long time. And I had no idea mm-hmm. because I didn't think to look if I've got something that's sort of proactively looking at my network with all the stuff that I have here, it would be worth spending some money on that. So, Yeah. Yeah, I remember the other time this came up is I was looking at one of these uh, network uh, intrusion detection boxes. And I I won't mention the vendor. Um, But anyways, another thing I noticed, so on a lot of, so even on everyday switches, there should be LEDs on the front. Now, sometimes they're really tiny and not labeled properly, but I remember distinctly that I plugged this device in and the lights came up different on my switch. And I'm like, well, that's weird why is it reporting 100 megabits and then i looked at the specs for the device and it's like oh that's because it's 100 megabit per second ethernet port right right they made a a bad choice because it was it was turning into a bottleneck because as you found 100 megabits is not enough yeah it's not enough well plus i i think i think you're right i think if i had looked while it was active i would have seen errors and all that stuff so mm-hmm. all right we promised some disk stations some nas stuff this week john and we are not going to be liars twice so let's go to Doug and Doug asks, he says, um, I have a question regarding backing up my Synology drive. I have a DS116 one bay Synology disk station with a three terabyte drive installed that I use to keep data and media files so that they are accessible by all my devices. I do not use it for my music library or photos library. However, I plan on setting up Synology drive server, formerly cloud station server for some of this stuff. Well, I also wouldn't use Synology drive for your music library or photos library. There's other ways. We'll talk about that. Uh, It says I have a three terabyte external drive that I will use to physically connect to the Synology and keep connected in order to back up the contents of the disk station. It seems that I can either, either use hyper backup or usb copy to back up my synology my question is which method do you recommend i use and why and do i need to or can i format the external drive before connecting it to the disk station all right um yeah it's a good question i use hyper backup here um 
to back up my disk station only because I have an extra disk station. I'm fortunate, I know. Uh, and that's where I store my backups. So I use Hyper Backup Server on the, the extra disk station. I use Hyper Backup and the two talk to each other and it's, it's great. Um, if I didn't have that though, and I was doing it to just an external drive that like, like you were, you were talking about here, which is probably a more common solution. I'd really strongly consider using USB copy because that way my backups would be readable on something other than a Synology disk station. And, and that would be important if I didn't have a spare Synology disk station here. Right. So yeah, I would, I would definitely look at doing I would do the USB copy thing. And yes, you can format it on your Mac. Um, I believe, in fact, I'm, I'm certain that your Synology will read and write to an HFS plus volume. So you really could format it HFS plus on your Mac and then connect that. And I, I see no reason why USB copy wouldn't work that way. So I, I think actually that's probably the best way for most of us to be backing up our, our disk stations. John, I know you have a spare disk station too, so you probably have gone my route, but maybe not. Well, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Um, so I, I distribute my data between the two so that okay. they have about the same percentage of space for you. Like one, I have my video files on another one. I'll have my music on. So, so just to spread things out, but yeah, what I do is, yeah. So if you're, if you're fortunate enough to have more than one NAS, I would, uh, what I do is I have hyper backup, backup the data on one of mine to the hyper backup vault on the other and then the same thing, but in the other direction. Vice versa. Got it. Okay. So they're yeah. back. Now the nice thing is that hyper backup gives you more than just a straight copy. For example, it can do versioning and all that. So you may want to consider hyper backup if versioning is important to you. That makes sense. That, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. The one thing I found with that though, Dave, is that if you are going to use the Synology, uh, I had a problem recently where I, I was, fiddling with one of their other packages um their uh, virtual machine manager which yeah. uh on certain synologies you can run a virtual machine um not the best performance just because of the class of processor i have in these but it works but it also requires you to make a change to your networking especially if you have a bonded connection you have to enable this thing called open v switch hmm. and apparently i made the change about a month ago, because I, I was looking at the logs. Uh, here's another tip. Look at the logs for your backups. And I noticed that they haven't been happening for about a month. And I'm like, oh, what did I do about a month? Oh, so I basically disabled that open vSwitch feature. And then all of a sudden the backup resumed. Hey, that's good. Oh, another I'll, 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 I'll follow on to your other tip, John. I put a monthly event on my calendar to check my backups. And I don't check the backups of every machine every month, but I kind of rotate my tour like, okay, is this one doing okay? And checking the Synology and checking this, just something to make it top of mind so that I don't forget. So another, another good little tip. Uh, listener. And I oh, go ahead. actually schedule. So here's another thing. The uh, another, another thing, nice thing about hyper backup is it has a feature called check backup integrity. Mm. Um, I think I actually, uh, yeah, I think I have a monthly event scheduled, 
when you create a hyper backup job, you can say, okay, you know, run this every day, every week, every month, but, but there's also a setting, Hey, you want me to run an integrity check? And I think I do that monthly. So if there's anything wrong with the backup, it'll, you'll hear about it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Uh, uh, While we're on the subject of backups, uh, listener, Mike asks, can you point me to a good resource about using time machine with my Synology? I've seen some reasonable instructions, but they want me to use a time machine user. I'd like to use this for several household computers and users, all of which already have user accounts in the Synology system, e.g. for Drive and the like. Can they use their current user accounts for Time Machine on the Synology? All the tutorials assume one user for Time Machine on the Synology. So here's here's why you can. Yes, when you set up a, a, a shared folder or a shared volume, on Time Machine, on, on Synology, you can mark it as a volume that Time Machine can point to. The reason all the instructions that you find point to or it instruct you to have a separate user is because Time Machine does not manage storage in that Time Machine will use all the storage it can see. And you don't, if you've got, you know, a a Synology disk station with terabytes and terabytes of storage, you don't want Time Machine just filling all that up. You want to be able to put some boundaries on it. You want to be able to put some quotas on it. And you can use user accounts to have quotas for specific volumes. So if you have a Time Machine backup volume, you can point, uh, you know, Time Machine iMac Office to that volume and say, okay, only give it, you know, one terabyte worth. And then from there, Time Machine only sees one terabyte and it will do its, its you know, expiration and, and recycling and all that stuff within that little box. You can, with BTRFS now on, on Synologies, you can set volume-specific quotas that are for all users. This makes life way easier for two reasons. Number one... Like Mike asks, you can use, and Mike found this too, Mike, you can use the same user account that you'd use for Drive and everything else for your time machine backups, but you're backing up to a volume that has a quota. I highly recommend using quota, using a separate volume, separate shared folder for each time machine backup. And the reason is if your time machine backup gets corrupted, Deleting the time machine backup from across the network can literally take days. And really, if all you want to do is wipe the backup and start from scratch, well, if the only thing on that volume is that one backup, you can just erase the shared volume, the shared folder, add a new one, and boom, you're back up and running. You just wire it up, say this has X number of terabytes, and you just start from scratch. But if you have five different computers backing up to a volume, well, then you can't do that, can you? So I highly recommend going the route of, yes, using the same user accounts, using different volumes for each machine, setting the quotas on the volume, assuming you can set volume quotas. And I I keep saying volume, and I really mean to say shared folder, I think, uh, because that's the Synology terminology. I'm going to pull it up here. But, um, But that way you are in, you know, you're in control of everything, Time machine's not going to run rampant on you, and you're in in uh, in good shape. But yeah, shared folders is is where you're going to do that from. So, yeah, good. Any thoughts on that, John? Good, good. I'll have to re-examine. Yeah, 
how I do this because yeah, one of my, uh, yeah, I think one of my synologies, or maybe they're both, did I reformat that one? No, I don't think I did. So I got one running ext4 and I think the other one is running BTRFS. So. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't know they had bonus features. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, you go in, in, you go into control panel, shared folder, you highlight whatever the shared folder is. You hit edit. Uh, you go to advanced and there is now a box that says enable shared folder quota. And you can check the box and set it to whatever you want. You say, okay. And you're done. Uh, you also there, you can choose the permissions tab and set which users can back up to it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I believe this is it in order to set things as time machine, you have to go to file sharing file services and, uh, and I believe I'm trying to remember where it is here. Ah, there it is. Okay. Enable shared folder quota. Yeah. And it is not checked. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in order to turn on time machine support for volume so that it shows up bonjour style time machine, you go into control panel file services advanced and in the bonjour section, you turn basically, I would say turn everything on, although printer broadcast may not be a thing that matters to you uh, and then set time machine folders and you check the ones that you want it to, to advertise as time machine shares. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So rather than setting a user quota, you set this other value. You okay. set the vol the shared folder quota and you're good to go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. Andrew asked a question that we've, we've essentially just answered by, by example, but Andrew says, um, are you able to tell me if connecting to a NAS Synology or any other brand is similar connecting to a Mac server? I want to dis deploy a NAS for my department and I don't have something to test with. Would I go to go and connect to server in the finder and either enter the IP address or name of the NAS. And then when prompted, does it resemble the normal credential request, meaning typing a username and password? And once authenticated, does it show a user all the files regardless of permission? Or does it only show me those folders that that user has access to? So, yeah, um, what you described is exactly one of the ways that you can interact with a NAS. So in, in terms of file sharing across a network, exactly what you just said. You'd go to the file or the, the go menu in the finder, you'd connect to server, you'd do exactly that. You could go to the network group in the finder and find it there because presumably it's broadcasting itself. And yes, once you log in, it shows you what's available to you, not what's available to everyone, unless everything is available to you, in which case, you know, that's how that goes. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's how you would interact with it. In terms of managing it, the Synologies, uh, most NASs don't have a, an HDMI port, you know, for a video screen. Uh, you don't generally manage locally. You manage via a web interface uh, to do it. And, and I mean, that makes it nice because you can manage it, well, frankly, from anywhere. I mean, I was managing my disk station when I was traveling in Portland. I, I, I don't even think about it. I just go and like, oh, I need to make a change to something. Okay, I'll go make that change. You know, I try not to make any destructive changes. And I'm excited, John, because I'm finally going to be as fast as you. I'm going to I'm going to replace my DS 10 19 plus with a DS 15 20 plus, which is which now has the same CPU that your 920 plus. Right. You have a 920 plus there, right? No, um, I thought you had the 920. Uh, the 918. Mm. And That's right. Okay, so I'll be faster because I am as fast as you now. The 1019 and the 918 are the 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 four and five bay or five and four bay versions. So 
so now I'll be, I'll be leapfrogging, which is, you know, just good Need to, mm-hmm. to try out the latest and greatest, John. It, it yeah. arrived while I was under the knife and I don't want to move drives mm-hmm. around and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not, I, I can wait. Okay. Things are working fine. But yeah, the thing is, uh, 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 so in Synology, you go to control panel file services, and these are all the protocols. So you can choose SMB, AFP, NFS for people that even know what that means. <laughs> um, but that's where all that stuff is. Um, I think for the most part, you want to use SMB if you're on a Mac. You can use AFP if you want, but unless you've got a good reason, I don't know if I would. Um, I would leave AFP enabled for the right kind of time Ooh. machine support, just so it's right. got the option of doing both. Uh, hmm. Your Mac will default for file services. It will default to connecting over SMB unless there's some specific reason for it not to, uh, because that's the mm-hmm. default when even two Macs connect to each other now. But, but oh, yeah, okay. a- AFP would, it, I, I leave it enabled. I've found it's better to have it than not. Cause there's some scenarios, hmm. especially with time machine where it's like, well, I, I don't know how to talk to this thing. It's like, Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah okay. Gotcha. Sure. Yep. So cool. Um, mm, 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 mm. you know, we've got one last question here and it, uh, it came in from listener, John and listener, John asks, he says, um, I think I already know what you're going to say, but it helps to know what I'm contemplating. He's had a Drobo uh, 5N. First, he had a Drobo FS. He has a Drobo 5N. It does everything that it needs. I'm paraphrasing and speeding things up here because I know we're running out of time, but I want to make sure we get this. Um, He says his Drobo recently had a problem where it was reporting that every new drive he put in it failed. And he needs to, uh, and so he did a paid Drobo support call. They realized this was the problem. And uh, they sent him a Drobo 5N as a loaner so that he could put his data in that and get his data off of it. But he says, obviously, he can't keep the loaner forever. So the question is, move to the Drobo 5N2 or buy a new, uh, uh, you know, a new brand, go with something like a Synology. Uh, he uses Plex on it. He uses file sharing. He uses, um, uh, you know, uh, backing up with time machine. So the question is which way to go. I, I know what answer I would give for me. And that is that I would go with a Synology, but let's break down John's scenario here. If, uh, if we can and see what's best for him. So the pros to a Drobo setup going with the five N two are, you know, the platform, uh, you're comfortable with how it works. You have not yet wanted more than it can deliver uh, functionality wise. And it's, you know, it, it's been fine for you. Most, mostly fine. The cons is the cons are the big one is what you're experiencing here, that it is a closed system. There is zero chance of reading your data on anything other than another Drobo device, which is why they had to send you this loaner. Um, with Synology, the easiest way to read your data is another Synology device, but it's not the only way. You can mount those drives in a Linux volume. It uses standard, uh, I think it's LVM is what it uses. So it uses standard sort of multi-drive array stuff that can be leveraged most of the time. I mean, if you've got encryption, that starts to make it a little bit weird, but um, but otherwise, you know, it, it mountable. Um the, the Drobo in the con list, it is feature constrained, meaning that what you're doing with it 
is almost the limit of what you can do. There's a couple other things you can add, but by and large, you know, the amount of packages and, and expansion features available are, are pretty limited, but you're not finding that to be a problem thus far. So, okay. Um, and we don't know about the future of Drobo. The, the 5N2 is the most recent consumer-focused NAS they've delivered, and it's three-plus years old now. Um, yes, it's a pandemic, but as we just casually mentioned, Synology just rolled out a whole line of things this year. So flipping over the pros to Synology, they are releasing new products. Uh, it's a much more complete platform. It's a more open platform for most of the things that you would put in there. The cons to Synology are that the UX is unknown to you. No, it's not terribly difficult, but it is somewhat confusing, especially when you realize you can do six things 14 different ways, you know. Um, so it's a little, there's a learning curve there, um, complex at times. But otherwise, that's about it. Like, that's the, that's the, that's the list of cons that I can come up with for it is, is that. So, um, you know, going with a, a five bay unit, like what you've got there, even more powerful that the DS fifteen twenty that I just mentioned uh, would be the one that I would recommend. Although, if you can find a DS, you know, ten nineteen plus, that's another five bay unit. Uh, that way, you know, you can kind of use the same types of drives, et cetera, et cetera. That you know, um, it's it's plenty fast. I mean, that's what I'm currently running, and it's fine. John's running the same CPU. It's totally fine for him. In fact, it's more than fine. I constantly have three people streaming movies from one disc station, and it's I don't even notice unless I look in Plexamp, and it's like, oh, hey, look, that's cool. So, yeah, it's not a problem. So, I don't know. Those are my thoughts, John. Got anything to add before we get out of here? Um, I... Yeah, I. What do I think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the. Well, I looked at their page and they did release an eight something, but the five I think is is. So I think they've released some newer products, but but yeah, not consumer focused. Okay, that that's that was sort of my thing. Is like the five series was definitely for the you know consumer prosumer. Whereas the, the that new eight not new ish eight thing that they mm -hmm. have is far more enterprise, um, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm with you on that. So yeah, they they have some choices. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think you have one choice. <laughs> one of the problems with Synology is they have almost too many choices. Yes. Uh, though they do have, I think they have. Uh, I went the other day, and I think they have a wizard. Where you say, okay, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do that, and they're like, oh, well, then you probably want this this yes. unit. Yes. But um, unless you you get someone to hold your hand or you know talk to one of their their people, deciding on which one to get can be a chore. We we you know what we should do, John, is um, we should come up with like the MGG resource page because I often in my text expander snippets keep a a comparison like the URL, and it's amazing that Synology does this. When you go to compare different NASs at, at Synology, you know, you check the box and you say compare and it shows you the list. Thank goodness all of those NASs are encoded in the URL. So I can copy that URL and I can share it with any of you. Most of the time when one of you writes in and says, which one should I buy? 
my advice is the same. It doesn't necessarily change. I mean, I might show you the same list and then say, okay, for what you've said, you should lean towards this one versus that one. But it's almost always going to be the same three to four units that we're sort of picking between. And the other ones are, are kind of noise. Uh, we should, pu we should publish that, that, that link somewhere so that at any point mm. in time you can just go and, and find it. So, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. I have some ideas, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but, um, but yeah, that, that right. would be good because it, when it's narrowed down to three or four of them, it's way easier to, to see. Oh, I see that, you know, Synology should do this, by the way, they should have like, are you a home user? I think they think they do, but it, I don't, they don't. So yeah, there you go. So that's that. We didn't get to any of our cool stuff found today, but uh, we didn't promise that we were going to get there. At least I don't remember promising that we were going to get there, John. And, and memory is the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the most important part, I think. So there you go. I'm bringing the band in, man. We made it. Right. I think we made it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You made it. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of this. This is, it's, man, recovery from laparoscopic surgery is amazing how quickly mm -hmm. things come together. It's, uh, that's the, the marvel of modern medicine, my friend. We are, mm -hmm. I am very, we are very fortunate here. I am very fortunate that, um, you know, these things are, are, can just happen like not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it is a big yeah, hope deal. It, hope, hope it didn't break the bank. Mm. Yeah. I have no doubt we have hit our very large, we keep a, um, we, yeah, we keep a really high deductible plan. Uh, we always have, you know, it's basically catastrophic like this. So it's, it's mm -hmm. I treat my health insurance as insurance, right? It's bankruptcy protection. So mm -hmm. uh, this will protect me from bankruptcy. But I think our, you know, our deductible for the family is like, I don't know, 10 or 11 grand or something like that. It, mm -hmm. And we rarely even get close to that in a calendar year. Um, I'm just glad that we have, I am I, like uh, th throughout the day Wednesday, I thought, I wonder at what point today I will soar past our deductible <laughs> and, and this all becomes, you know, negligible cost. And so my, I'm happy that we have four months left in the calendar year to think about any other like tests or procedures or things that we might have been putting off because now's the time. So yes. All righty. Um, but yeah, yeah, I have, I have no doubt it, it broke the bank, but you know, that's the, mm -hmm. the, the price of health. It, it's crazy that it, anyway, I won't get started on any of that. I'm fortunate that we can, we can, we can make it through. So it's mm -hmm. good. It is good. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we got. Thanks for sending in all your questions, folks. Thanks to all of our premium contributors. Um, we've we've gone way over our normal time today. So again, I'm going to just push that to next week. But thank you. You make a huge difference here at MacGeekab.com slash premium. Does, doesn't hurt with the medical bills, but really it, it makes a difference with, with everything that we do. So um, if you're interested in that, check it out. But, um, but uh, you know, everything you do, sending in your questions, visiting our sponsors, whether or not you buy from them is between you and them, but visiting our sponsors, that really helps us. Um, like I said, sending in your questions, your tips, listening to the show, really, that's the, like the best thing you can do. Share the show. That's my, that's my request of you this week. Find a friend that you think would like this, share it, share it with your friends on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Say, Hey, here's a podcast I like to listen to share it. That would make a huge, it does make a huge difference for us. So just share it. 
That's all I got. You got anything else before we get out of here, Mr. Braun? Nope. Okay. Well, that's going to do it. Please uh, make sure to check out the sponsors that we mentioned in the show. That's expressvpn.com slash MGG. Smilesoftware.com slash podcast. Lino.com slash MGG. Of course, our ongoing sponsors, Eero.com slash MGG. Barebones.com. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. It's all good. Very, very lucky. Sunsoil.com slash MGG. That's been super helpful for me. Recovering here. I've been able to not take any, like, painkillers or anything. It's great. Well, folks, uh, I hope your week, this coming week, is less eventful than mine this past week was, but just as successful. And uh, while you're out there, be careful, have fun, and John, especially to you, well, to all of us, don't get caught. Made up. Doesn't get any simpler than that. <laughs>